Uh, brothers and sisters, Genesis uh, 1, 1 through 5 is the Old Testament reading for today. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6 is our New Testament reading. Uh, we're going to come to focus only upon verse 2 of Genesis 1 in the sermon for today. So hear now the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let's go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6, only the last part of this passage will seem to correspond to the passage that's under consideration today. Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is a good word for ministers of the gospel even today to not do these things. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So far the reading of God's most holy word, and we do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it. Genesis 1-2 describes to us the condition of the earthly realm as it was immediately following God's act of absolute creation, which was described in Genesis 1.1. And prior to God's forming of that realm in the world of that realm into the world as we know it, as described in verses 3 and following. That was as clear as mud, wasn't it? Genesis 1.2 describes to us the condition of the earthly realm as it was immediately following God's absolute creation, which was described in Genesis 1.1, and prior to God's forming of that realm into the world as we know it, as described in verses 3 and following of Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is God's act of absolute or primary creation in which he calls the realm of heaven and the realm of earth into existence. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is the condition now of the earthly realm as it was at first, immediately after God called it into existence. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, etc., etc. Verses 3 and following describe the, the forming of that earthly realm, which was at first empty and void into the world as we now know it. So God did at first call into existence the heavenly invisible realm, 
along with the earthly physical realm, and the earthly physical realm was at first without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And after this, God did shape, form, and fashion the earthly realm into the world as we know it. He made it into a place suitable for the maintenance of life and a habitation that was suitable for man. Remember, brothers and sisters, that the heavens of verse 1 refer not to the place where the birds fly, nor to the place where the stars reside, but to what Paul calls the third heaven. It is the realm where God's glory is now manifest, where the elect angels stand before the throne of God to sing Him praise, along with the souls of the saints who, having departed from this world, do now enjoy the presence of the Lord as they wait the consummation of all things. Now I realize that this is a repeat of what I said in the sermon that I preached three weeks ago on Genesis 1.1, but I think it is very much worth repeating. In the beginning, God created two realms, the spiritual realm, which is typically invisible to us, it is called heaven, and the material world which we encounter with our senses is what Genesis 1.1 calls earth. Uh, this acknowledgement of and distinction between heaven and earth is so fundamental to a Christian worldview. I think it would be very foolish for us to rush through the establishment of it here in the first few verses of Genesis 1. Uh, That the scriptures teach the existence of a spiritual realm, which is typically invisible to us, is undeniable, isn't it? Uh, Many examples can be presented from the scriptures where God gives some person or group of people a glimpse of this heavenly realm, For now, I think it will suffice to remind you of our recent study uh, through the book of Revelation. Remember how the visions shown to John shifted continuously between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. In one moment, John would say, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, or I saw a beast rising out of the earth. And in the next moment, we would hear John say something like, then I saw heaven opened. Revelation 19.11, or I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, that is Revelation 6.9. And so John was one of those who was shown something of the heavenly realities which typically lie beyond our sense perception. He was shown visions of the heavenly realm. These two realms, the, the heavenly and the earthly, are mentioned continuously throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. Uh, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, it is in heaven where God manifests His glory supremely. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God is not disengaged from what is going on on earth. He is indeed here and present. He is active, but the earth is described as His footstool. And so we have this image from the start of God's created world. It consists of two parts, two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. God is in both, but He is in both, and He engages with both in a different way. God's glory is manifest and is confined to the heavenly realm. The angels worship Him there. The souls of those who have departed from this world are there present before Him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and yet the earth is described as His footstool. He is present here also, and He is active amongst us. Uh, Friends, our worldview is not biblical, and certainly it is not mature, 
if we are not continuously mindful of the heavenly realm that God made in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth remain still today, and at the end of time, heaven and earth, as we learn in our study of the book of Revelation, will become one when God makes all things new, when this earthly realm will in fact be filled with the glory of God, and all will be temple, the temple of God. The Christian is to live, therefore, being ever mindful, not only of the earth, which we see with our natural eyes, but also of heaven, which we can see only with eyes of faith, typically. Therefore, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the words of our Savior. He is urging us to be ever mindful of the heavenly realm and to live for that realm which is permanent, to store up our treasures there in that realm and not this realm, the realm of the earth that will be consumed by fire at the end of time. Uh, that the scriptures teach that there is a heavenly, spiritual and invisible realm that is invisible to us cannot be denied. But when was this realm made? When was this heavenly realm made? The answer is that it was created by God in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When were the angels made who reside there even now? When were they created? The answer is that they were created by God in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavenly realm and all the hosts that do dwell there and the earth, and he did fill the earth also. This is confirmed by the Apostle Paul. When he wrote concerning the creation, he said this, For by Him, that is Christ, the eternal Word of God come in the flesh, by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And then he does give us more descriptors of heaven and earth, and he describes them as realms visible and invisible. Clearly, the Apostle Paul has in mind heaven being that realm that is invisible to us, whereas the earthly realm is the realm that is visible to us. Paul interprets heaven as the spiritual realm and earth as the physical one that corresponds to our natural senses. Consider also how God's creation of heaven and earth is spoken of in Nehemiah 6, 9, 6. Uh, there the people give praise to God, saying, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you, Nehemiah 9.6. And so did you hear it as I read it quickly? Clearly, Nehemiah 9.6 interprets heaven of Genesis 1 as being the heaven of heavens. It is the place where the host or army of heaven dwells, that is to say, the angels. These are the ones who worship and serve God forever and ever. And so Nehemiah 9.6 also interprets Genesis 1.1 in this way. Heaven refers to the heavenly spiritual realm where the angels reside. And also consider that Job 38 teaches that the angels of God were present to witness the creation of the world from their heavenly vantage point. The angels of God were present to witness the creation of the world from their heavenly vantage point. It is here in this passage that God questions Job, saying, Job, 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. God is here speaking of of the creation or formation of the earth. And he asks Job, where were you when I did all of this? Uh, God was reminding Job that he was one... That, that he was one of God's creatures. God is the creator and Job was but a creature. Job was not there to witness the formation of the earth. Indeed, no man was there to witness the formation of the earth. Man would not be created until the sixth day of creation, as we will see. But who was there to see it, according to Job chapter 38? Of course, God was there to see it. But so too were the angels. The morning stars sang together, And all the sons of God shouted for joy, the text says, when they witnessed God's act of creation. So what did God do in the beginning? He created the heavenly realm and also the earthly realm. And this is why Isaiah 37, 16, uh, we see God is called the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Do you hear the way that Isaiah speaks of God? He is the God not only of this realm. He is the God of not only the things of this earth, but he is the God of heaven also and all of the hosts that do reside there. He called both the heaven and the earth into existence by the word of his mouth. And so, friends, I know that I've been repetitive, but I think it is needed. This interpretation that I have given you of Genesis 1.1 is actually uncommon today, and I'm well aware of that fact. Um, The older commentators tend to say what I have just said, and I think the better of the more modern commentators also agree with what I have just said, but not many of them do. And I'm afraid that Christians today often, therefore, go on unaware of the heavenly realm. We are oftentimes worldly-minded fixated upon the things of this earth, consumed with the visible, the physical, and the tangible. But the Holy Scriptures begin by establishing that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The people of God who have faith in God are therefore to go on sojourning in this world, being ever mindful of the heavenly realm that was created by God in the beginning. Do notice how quickly, though, the text comes to focus upon the earthly realm. Notice how quickly the text comes to focus on the earthly realm. Uh, No detail at all is provided concerning the creation of the heavenly realm. Do you notice that? We are simply told that God created it, the heavenly realm, in the beginning. But some detail is given concerning the formation of the earth. Notice I say some detail. We will encounter it in the rest of Genesis chapter 1. I say some detail because Genesis 1 certainly is not a scientific description of the formation of the earth. It is not packed filled with detail. But some detail is given concerning the formation of the earth. In verse 2 we read that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What follows will be a description of God bringing the earth, that is the universe, into the form that it has today. There is light and there is darkness. There is land and there is sea. There is an atmosphere for us to breathe. These realms 
are all governed by rulers, the sun, moon, and stars, the fish and the birds, the land animals, with man as supreme. Uh, This is the world as we know it. We are familiar with this world. But do you see that in verse 2, it is revealed to us that the earth was at first without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, when God created the earthly realm, He did not at first create it complete and fully formed, suitable for the sustenance of life. It was incomplete, unformed, and therefore uninhabitable at first. The question that we might ask is, how long did the world exist in this incomplete, unformed, and uninhabitable state? Are you following me? God spoke the earthly realm into existence. It was at first uninhabitable. And then God did begin to form it. This we know He accomplished in six days. How long did the world exist in this incomplete, unformed, and uninhabitable state? And some very good commentators say that it is impossible to know. In other words, it may be that the earth without form and void and darkness covering the the face of the waters, perhaps that existed for eons. But in order to hold this position the position that the earth may have existed for a long time in this formless void and dark state, one must separate verse 2 from verses 3 through 5, which say, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. This was accomplished on the first day. But in order to hold this view that this formless and void state existed for a very long time prior to the formation of the earth, prior to God's calling light into existence, one must separate verse 2 from verses 3 through 5, which describe God's activities on the first day of creation. Put differently, if we are to believe that the earth existed for a long time without form and void, with darkness over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, then then day one of creation, then day one of creation, must begin with verse 3, and the words, And God said, Let there be light. These words, Let there be light, mark the beginning of verse 3, that that are at the beginning of verse 3, mark the beginning of day 1 of creation, if this view is to be held. In other words, in order to hold to the view that the stuff of the universe might be very, very old, but but that the earth as we know it in its present form is relatively young, One must separate the act of absolute creation that is described in verse 1 from the act of formative creation that is described in verses 3 and following. Only then can we hold to the belief that the stuff of the universe is old, whereas the form of it is relatively young. Are you tracking with me through all of this? If not, you can look at my manuscript later and read it and catch up. I've actually agonized a bit over this question. In months past, I've read extensively on it, I've worked with the text, and it is my opinion that there is no reason at all to separate verses 3 through 5 from verses 1 and 2. Put differently, the text gives us no reason to separate the act of absolute creation that is described in verse 1 from the act of formative creation that is described in verses 3 and following. In fact, the scriptures give us good reason to believe that God did in fact begin His creative work, absolutely, and finish His creative work, absolutely, 
in the space of six days, and all very good. I've mentioned that Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 make up the first section of the book of Genesis. It is the introduction or, or prologue to the book of Genesis. And notice how this section concludes. This is significant. It does not leave off verses 1 and 2 and treat them as separate, but comes back to them to wrap everything up into a neat little package. The conclusion includes verses 1 and 2 in the days of creation when it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. In other words, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, as it brings this whole section uh, to conclusion, looks back upon everything that has been said, including verses 1 and 2, and treats it as if it is included in the six days of creation. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 certainly gives the impression that God did all of His creative work in six days. This also includes the absolute, primary, and out-of-nothing creation that is described in Genesis 1.1. Notice that this is also the way that subsequent revelation speaks of the days of creation. In other words, when we continue on reading Holy Scripture and move on from Genesis 1 and get on into the other books of the Bible, as they look back on creation and when they speak of creation, subsequent revelation also speaks of the days of creation, all of creation having been finished in six days' time. Exodus 31.16 can be held forth as an example of this. There we read, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. And so it is my view that all of Genesis 1, 1 through 5 should be viewed as having been accomplished on the first day of creation. God, on the first day, spoke the heavenly realm and the earthly realm into existence out of nothing. The earthly realm, we are told, was at first incomplete and uninhabitable, and then God began the process of bringing it into its present form by calling light into existence and separating the light from the darkness. This he did on the first day. I'm well aware of the fact that this is not the popular view today. There are many other interpretations of Genesis 1, 1 through 3 that are put forth in commentaries today. But all of them seem to have this in common. They are eager to make room for the belief in an earth that is very, very old. It seems to be what motivates much of what is said in modern commentaries. And I was tempted here to say a lot about modern science and my view of it, Uh, but I decided to keep my remarks very brief. While I do appreciate science, of course, and while I do believe that we can learn a great deal through our observation of the natural world, I wonder if we have not conceded too much to science when it comes to its claims concerning origins, concerning origins. Did you hear God's words to Job? God kind of put him in his place, didn't he? Where were you when I formed the earth? Were you there? Did you witness it? And I think sometimes in our pride, we pretend as if we can know for certain how 
everything was brought into existence simply by our observation of the natural world. I wonder if we have not conceded too much to science when it comes to its claims concerning origins, concerning things that happened when man did not even exist yet. Our culture and even the Christian church today seems to view science in a way similar to how a Roman Catholic views the Pope. Do you know what I mean by this? If the scientific community says it, then it must be true. And now I know I'm beginning to wade out into deep and dangerous waters here, and I do not intend to really go much further out into these deep waters. But for now, I wonder if I could draw your attention to three things. One, I hope you would agree that our observation of the natural world can only take us so far. Can we learn wonderful things from our observation of the natural world? Yes, indeed. You and I benefit a great deal, actually, from scientific investigation. I, I, I agree with that. But it can only take us so far. There are some questions that science is not well suited to answer. There are some things that science will never be able to answer. There are certain questions that science is ill-equipped to answer. And so we must keep that in mind. Two, have you considered that the scientific consensus is ever-changing concerning its opinions regarding human origins? As it is with the Pope of Rome, so it is with science. When someone claims that one or the other speaks infallibly and authoritatively, one only has to point out how quickly and how frequently the declarations that come from these institutions, be it the papacy or the scientific community, have changed. Here they speak as if this is the final word. How do you know this? Science. Oh, (laughs) science. Okay. Can't question that. But then when we begin to consider how how frequently... uh, the scientific opinion does change concerning these matters. We should be little, a little hesitant to, to relegate so much to it and to concede so much uh, to science. Um, neither of these institutions should be trusted as our final authority in matters of faith, and their fickleness proves it. I am here referring to the papacy and science, the scientific community. Three, would you please acknowledge that even scientists do bring presuppositions to their work? Scientists, like Christians, have a worldview of their own. They are not as free from baggage as they might lead you to believe as they do their work, but they do come to the task of interpretation with certain presuppositions. I'll say no more about science, uh, for our task here is truly with the exposition of Holy Scripture, which is the Christian's authority for truth. Uh, But for a much more thorough discussion concerning science, its benefits and also its limitations, I can think of no greater resource than Volume 1 of Herman Bovink's Reform Dogmatics, which is called Prolegomena. If you're interested in reading further on this, I would encourage you to read Herman Bovink's works. But brothers and sisters, when I come to the text of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and when I read it in light of the rest of the scriptures, I am content to say what our confession says so beautifully, that in the beginning... It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. I think this is right and true. That is the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 4, paragraph 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Notice that in verse 2, we have three descriptors of the earthly realm as it was originally. One, the earth was without form and void. 
Two, darkness was over the face of the deep. And three, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What do these things mean? What does it mean that the earth was without form and void? In the Hebrew, the phrase is tohu vabohu. The word tohu means emptiness, wilderness, or wasteland. The word vabohu carries a similar meaning. Together, the words communicate that the earth was at first desolate and uninhabitable. It was not a place suitable for for man, especially, for life at all, but particularly man. Isaiah 45, 18 confirms this interpretation when it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it, He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 18. Uh, This verse is saying that though the earth was at first empty and void, God's purpose for it was not so. His purpose for it was to be inhabited, and so he did form it into its present shape as we know it today, as is described in the six days of creation. What does it mean that darkness was over the face of the deep? Well, it means that there was no light at all, but only darkness covering the primeval waters. Uh, The scene, if you are really to think about it, is quite terrifying, isn't it? It's quite threatening to even try to picture what this would have been like, this this earthly realm that is just empty and void and dark, waters covering the face of the deep. Far from warm and homey, the world was at first dark, cold, and threatening. And I agree with E.J. Young, who in his book Studies in Genesis 1 says that it is not appropriate to refer to this condition as a chaos. Chaos implies that something was out of control. The idea is found nowhere in the text. Everything is in fact portrayed as being perfectly under God's control. This world, even as it is described in Genesis 1-2, came from the hand of the Almighty. It was under His care and direction. So the world was not chaotic at this stage, but certainly it was no place for life. It was not yet formed into a home suitable for man. So that is how the earth existed at first. What does it mean that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters? The image is that of a bird fluttering or brooding over her nest to protect her young so as to bring forth life. And I really appreciate the words of Gerhardus Voss, who in his Reformed Dogmatic says, the Spirit here is not a wind from God. Uh, The word in the Hebrew For wind and spirit are the same word. And so some have proposed that this should be translated as the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But Voss is correct when he says, no, the spirit is not a wind from God sent out to dry what was created. It is the personal spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The word translated by hovering is used elsewhere of a bird that hovers protectively over her young. Think, for example, of Deuteronomy 33, 11. So already in the first instance where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Scripture, His activity is portrayed for us in an image borrowed from the kingdom of the birds, just as elsewhere He appears as a dove. Here, hovering, brooding, has in view the stirring of life within lifeless material. 
The brooding of birds brings out very aptly that life originates from outside by fructification. In the world, there is at first no life. The Spirit of God must hover above the roaring flood, for its roaring is dead noise. But the Spirit of God hovers on and above the waters. He does not mingle with them, notice. Even where God's eminence comes to the fore, God and the world still remain unmixed. And so here is how God created. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, etc., etc., a question that we must ask is, why the process of creation? Why the process of creation? Why didn't God simply create a fully formed earth in the beginning, as apparently He did with the heavenly realm? Certainly He could have done it. God could have very easily spoken the world into its present form, into its fully formed form, with one word. God could have done this, and we agree with Jeremiah the prophet when he says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Without a doubt, God could have spoken the earth fully formed into existence, and he would not have broken a sweat in doing so. And so we must ask the question, why the process? Why was the earth made formless and void with darkness over the face of the deep at first? And why the days of creation, as they are described here in Genesis chapter 1? Why did God progressively shape the earth into its present form? To put it differently, it did not take God six days to make the world, but God took six days to make the world, didn't he? It did not take him six days to make the world. Certainly we would never say something so blasphemous about our God that, that creation was so hard for him. It was so difficult. There was so much heavy lifting to be done. Look at it. It took our God six days to make the heavens and the earth. That is not the teaching of Holy Scripture. But instead, God took six days to make the heavens and the earth. He decided to do it this way. Why did God take his time, as it were? Why the process? And the answer is this. The act of creation, the act of creation was itself revelatory. And by this I mean that when God made the heavens and the earth in the way that He did, He communicated something to His creatures in the process. He revealed something to His creatures when He created as He did. In the act of creation, God revealed important things, things concerning Himself. Things concerning this world in which we live. Things concerning ourselves and His purpose for us. And so it is true that God could have made the world as we know it in an instant. He could have accomplished this without breaking a sweat. And if He did, if God created the world in an instant, then the only thing that would need to be said of creation is what is said in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No need for verses 2 and following here in chapter 1. 
But more than that is said, the earth was at first uninhabitable and dark, and then God did shape the world into its present form in six days' time. It did not take God six days to make the world, but God took six days to make it. And this He did in order to reveal truths concerning His person, His work, and His purposes for His creatures. Remember, brothers and sisters, that the angels witnessed the formation of the world, didn't they? They saw it. They watched the formation of the world in six days' time. And so something was revealed to them in the process concerning their God, concerning their Maker, concerning His purposes. And though man was not there to see it as the angels were, God revealed to man all that He did in creation. Remember that Adam and Eve were to work six days in the garden and they were to rest on the seventh to, among other things, mimic God's creative activities, which had been communicated to them by their Maker. In other words, God did this. He created the world in this way. And though man was not there to witness it, Job was not there, nor Adam nor Eve, he did reveal to them that he made the world in this way. And this was to have an impact then upon how they lived. They were to then live in the world in a particular way. They were to understand that they had a particular place before God. They were to understand that their purpose was was this and that, given the fact of creation and the act of creation, the process whereby God went about making the earthly realm. It, it, it was revelatory. The act of creation was itself revelatory. God communicated something to His creatures by what He did and how He did it. And so while it is true that God communicates to us by His Word, we should remember that He does first communicate to us by His action. God did at first do something. He created the heavens and the earth in a particular way. And then He gave His Word to His creatures. His Word tells of His creation. His Word interprets the fact of creation. His Word applies the implications of this act to the lives of His creatures. The act of creation was itself revelatory. The act itself said something about God, His world, and man who was placed upon it. I cannot overemphasize how important this is, brothers and sisters. And in fact, this same principle applies to all of God's creative or redemptive actions and the word revelation that does proceed from them or come after them. Take, for example, the Exodus. Maybe someday we'll come to look at the book of Exodus. God did something, didn't He, by the hand of Moses. God delivered His people out of bondage to the Egyptians, and He brought them safely into the land that was promised to them. This is not word, but this is act. This is the activity of God that we are now talking about. He did something in history. He delivered the Egyptians. He he delivered the Israelites from from, from the hand of the Egyptians. But notice, even there, in this act of redemption, He did not do it in an instant. Instead, there was a process. He did not do it in an instant. Instead, there was a process. There were how many plagues, brothers and sisters, poured out upon the Egyptians? There were ten of them. And the last one was the death of the firstborn. Those who had the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts were not affected, but the Lord covered them as a bird shelters her young so that the destroyer would not destroy them. I'm hoping you can make connections quickly here. I can't flesh them all out for you. And it was only after the tenth plague that the people of Israel were set free. Why ten plagues? Why the process? 
Was God having a hard time with Pharaoh? Is that what it was? Was Pharaoh just being so difficult that it took ten plagues to lead to the deliverance of, of Israel? Did God break a sweat in heaven as he proceeded on to plague seven, eight, and nine? And then, you know, was he growing tired? No, it did not take God ten plagues to deliver Israel from Egypt, but God took ten plagues to accomplish this act of new creation. And why, and why did he do this? Why did he do this? It's because the act of redemption was itself revelatory. We might say the same thing about the process of passing through the sea, the wilderness wanderings, the eventual con- conquest. The Exodus event was itself revelatory. God's people learned something about their God and His purposes for them, not by His word alone, but by, first of all, His act. And once the act of redemption or new creation was finished, then His word was given. When was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy written, brothers and sisters? It was written by Moses after the Exodus event. And His word was then given as a record of the act as an interpretation of the act, and as an application of it to the people of Israel now redeemed. The very same thing can be said concerning the redemption or the new creation that is in Christ Jesus. Did Christ accomplish our redemption? Of course He did. Did He atone for the sins of His people? He did. Did He say the words, it is finished? In other words, I have finished my work. Yes, He did. Did he sit down at the Father's right hand to enter into his rest, having accomplished all the Father gave him to do? Yes, he did. But he did it in a particular way. There was a process. And the process did also communicate something of the significance of his person and his work. The act of redemption was itself revelatory. And then the New Testament scriptures were written as a record of that act, as an interpretation of it, and as an application of it for us today. Listen to what Romans 3, 23-25 says. Uh, The first part is familiar to you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And here I am simply making this point. There was something about the way in which Christ accomplished our redemption that showed something. It was a demonstration of something. It was a revelation of something, namely God's justice, that He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Really, the idea here is not complicated. It is that God reveals Himself not just through His Word, as if He lowered His Bible down from heaven on a rope one day. Do you understand what I'm saying here? He has given us His Word, and we are grateful for that. But He did not lower His Bible down from heaven on a rope one day, but first He reveals Himself through His activities by what He does, by what He accomplishes in human history. His historical acts, the act of creation, and the way in which He chooses to accomplish His historical acts reveal something to us about who He is and who we are in His presence. 
His act of creation and also His act of redemption are, are revelatory. The way in which God rescued Israel out of Egypt and the way in which Christ accomplished our redemption reveals something concerning our God, this world, and also ourselves. So did it take God six days to make the heavens and the earth? No, it did not. God took six days to make the heavens and the earth. The earth did at first exist in that formless and void state, darkness covering the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was there. It was not chaos, but it was under God's control. Clearly, God is about to to do a work, for the Spirit of God is there hovering or brooding. The Spirit of God is about to bring life to this dark, formless, and void earth. This He does in the preceding passage in the preceding verse uh, in the verses that proceed from here uh, and we'll learn all about that in the weeks to come but here brothers brothers and sisters i'm hoping that that you're able to recognize this that there's something revelatory about the way in which god did make the heavens and the earth what do we learn from god's creative act then what do we learn from all of this we learn many things that are very foundational to our worldview. We learn that there is but one God. Genesis 1 makes that clear. There is but one God. We learn that this one God created all things that are not Him. All things seen and unseen. We are not to worship, therefore, anything that is a part of this creation. But we are to worship God alone. The God who in the beginning spoke all things into existence. All things seen and unseen. We learn that all that is not the Creator is, in fact, the creation. The stuff of this universe was not eternal, but it came into existence by the Word of God. It is not eternal. It is not divine. Only God is divine. Even the angels who are in heaven that we learn about in the pages of Holy Scripture had a beginning. We are therefore never to bow down before angels, for they are creatures. They are not the Creator. Do you see how foundational these things are to us? Do you see how the Scriptures go on to build upon these foundational truths that are made plain and clear in the earliest chapters of of the book of Genesis? We learn also that there is plurality in the Godhead. How many gods are there? Children, can you answer me? There is one God. How many persons are there in this one God? There are three persons, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning it was God who created the heavens and the earth, but He did so by His Word and by His Spirit. We learn that the triune God, Father, Word, and Spirit created the world to be inhabited. In His goodness He did form and fashion the world to make it a place suitable for man. This we will see as we continue our study in the weeks to come. He made a temple for man. A temple where man could dwell. A temple where man would enjoy communion with the God who made him. A temple where man would rightly worship the God who made him. We learn that the triune God, Father, Word, and Spirit is able to make something out of nothing, to bring form to that which is empty and void, life out of death, light out of darkness. Our God is a powerful and awesome and mighty God. He is able to do this. He has demonstrated it to us in creating the world as He did. This is, our, this is what our God did at creation. He formed the earth to be inhabited. And this our God does also in our redemption. He brings life out of death, light out of darkness. He brings into form things which are 
empty and void at first. Israel was as good as dead in Egypt, but God gave them life. Israel was as good as dead in that wilderness place as they wandered in that wasteland that was not suitable for human habitation. And Israel complained to Moses as they wandered, saying, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. I'm hoping you can connect the dots, brothers and sisters, that this should remind us of how the earth was at the beginning when it first came from God's hand. It was without form and void, and so too was that desert wilderness place that Israel sojourned in. For a time, but God gave them water from the rock to drink. He gave them manna to eat, and He brought them safely into the land that He prepared or formed for them a land suitable for habitation, a land flowing with milk and honey. And what shall we say of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus? Well, let us say this And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Do you see that what God did at creation, he has also done with us in Christ Jesus? You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God has made you alive. In Christ, we who were dead have been made alive. In Christ, we who walked only in darkness have seen the light. In Christ, we who were once without form and void, not suitable for communion with God, have been made into a temple by and of the Holy Spirit. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Paul says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for what the earliest verses of Genesis do say to us concerning human origins. We do confess, Lord, we were not there. We cannot put it all together. We cannot invent it. But we thank you that you have revealed it to us, that in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. It was at first void and empty, and you brought you brought life and light. You, you did make the world into a place that could be inhabited by us, where we could enjoy communion with you. Lord, this we confess we lost when Adam fell. Our communion with you was broken. We were given over to death. But you, God, being gracious to us, determined to save. You've provided a Redeemer for us who did wander through the wilderness, who was tested there in that place, who was obedient to you. And through Him, through Christ Jesus our Lord, we thank you. And by your word and spirit, we thank you. We are able to be brought into a right relationship with you once more. Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ as we consider all of these things, as we go out of these doors and look at the world in which we live. May we see it aright. May we see that it is your creation. May we see that it was formed like this for a reason, so that we might walk with you and have communion with you. Lord, we admit we are hopelessly lost apart from your graciousness, apart from Christ Jesus our Lord. But we thank you that you have provided us a way to know you and to be right before you through faith in Christ. Lord, draw us to faith if we do not have it. If we do have it, preserve us in our faith. Lord, cause us to grow in it day by day. 
Father, we do look forward to that day when the Lord returns and all is made new, when all is again temple, when all is righteous, when all is as it should be, your people walking with you in glory. We look forward to that day, Lord. Help us to be faithful until then. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.